Live from the Great White North, this is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor, what's up? Today is Thursday, July 30th. It has been a crazy week in earnings season. And for some investors who own BEP, Brookfield Renewable Energy Partners, very confused. I got tons of emails today. Why is the stock down 20%? It's not actually down 20%. Look at press releases. What happened today, Simon? Uh, yeah, well, well uh, first of all, welcome back, everyone, to the Canadian Investor Podcast. Um, yeah, for BP, it's actually, um, they announced it back in March. Um, so if you guys uh, just search the press releases, and uh, uh, you can also search uh, BPC, so Brookfield Renewable Partners Corporation. So essentially, it's a mix of a couple of things. Um, you can look also, um, just to get an idea of what happened, very similar to what BIP and BIPC did. Um, so what um, Brookfield is doing with these two uh, entities is they they want to make BEP and BIP more attractive to institutional uh, investors. So the reason right now that institutional investors are a bit reluctant to invest in those two is because they're limited partnerships and there can be some tax implications if you don't hold them into a registered account like a TFSA or RRSP. Um, so if you have them in a taxable account, um, it can be a bit of a pain to do taxes for that. So that is the goal behind that. Um, so what they're doing is for each four units of BEP, uh, I believe it's for holders, if I remember correctly, um, for owners of the shares as of July 27, 2020. Um, give it a week or two depending on your broker, but for owners at that date, for each four shares of BEP, they will receive one share of BEPC. So what they did in that, uh, it's basically a stock split, um, but what they did is the dividend will be, you'll receive the same dividend in terms of total amount of dollars when you combine both shares, but the dividend per share will be reduced a little bit. Um, so that's why um, basically they're diluting in some way, if you'd like, but it's splitting the stock. Um, so that's why you saw that drop. The 20-25% makes all the sense in the world because it's a four to one. So if you just do some quick math, it would be 20 to 25% depending how the market's reacting. So it's nothing to worry about. Um, the thing behind this stock split is they had to do that to finalize the acquisition with Terraform Power. So if some of you are Terraform Power owners, uh, in the next couple of weeks, you'll actually see your shares of Terraform Power being converted to uh, BEPC shares traded on the uh, on the U.S. stock exchange for those because Terraform Power is listed over there. Um, so, yeah, in a nutshell, that's the whole reasoning behind it. Brookfield is always doing some of the most absurd corporate restructuring I've ever seen, but they do whatever it takes to make some of these acquisitions happen. Terraform Power uh, has been a great renewable energy stock and uh, now is part of the Brookfield names. So yeah, busy, busy week. Big tech getting grilled by lawmakers, CEOs of Facebook, Amazon, Google, Apple. Um, I can't wait to watch some of these clips because last time they got grilled, watching some of these lawmakers navigate around tech is quite entertaining to say the least. Um, 
in earnings week, just before we move on to the topic of today, did you see anything that came on your mind, Simon, in terms of results coming out from some of these companies? Uh, you know, a lot of them coming out and saying, okay, I think, I think the worst is over. Um, but it's really, really hard to tell. Not many CEOs giving guidance, um, and the ones that are, you know, doing well through the pandemic are happy to even raise guidance. So it's, it's a bit of a mixed bag. What are you, what are you seeing out of some of these results? Uh, yeah, for the most part, it's, uh, obviously the results are quite for the most part impacted by the pandemics because Q2 is when pretty much everything was shut down. Whereas Q1 for the most part, depending how they're obviously their financial year lined up, but for the most part, Q1 was only partially impacted by the pandemic. So yeah, you're seeing businesses that uh, were really had a hard time through the Q2. Um, And I mean, for the most part, I think it was expected. Um, I always find it funny when companies are raising their guidance right now. Um, If you're a CEO, I mean, why would you even risk it? Even if you're very confident, uh, why, why aren't you just, you know, just pull it all together or just keep it as is if you think you'll you'll meet and possibly expect it. Um, I think it's a pretty bad move personally. Uh, right now to raise guidance when there's only downside in doing so. Um, Companies are basically getting a free pass if they're withdrawing guidance or keeping it as is. So that's probably my my take on it. Yeah, it's a complete free pass on guidance. Uh, You know, I'm not giving guidance this quarter. Oh, okay, that's fine. That's 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 completely fine. Um, so I agree with you. Why even why even say it? But again, I mean, a lot of these CEOs, execs know the business really well. They're seeing forecasts. They're seeing a potential uh, bottom in sales due to the pandemic and the lockdowns. You know, uh, I think a lot of them are realizing even if cases come back, we're not going to be putting, you know, the whole country in lockdown again, hopefully. I don't know. Who's to say, right? Like, <laughs> I'm knocking on wood right now as I say that. Um, let's move on to today's topic we thought we'd do a little stock pitch for you guys i love doing these uh last time i did one was spotify go check at the chart not a big deal um simon what is your pick this week um so my pick this week is uh, digital realty trust so i have mentioned this uh, before it is a data center um, and i think it's uh, really an amazing business um, lots of things going for it um, so just to give you guys a little idea of what uh, data center uh, REIT does so it is a real estate investment trust so they're required to pay 90 percent of their earnings um, to get a tax break um, however uh, some of the metrics we'll be using is from funds from operations and adjusted fund from operations so FFO and AFFO. Um, so before we get started, I know I've mentioned this before, but just if we have some new listeners or if you just forgot about it, that's fine. So the FFO is basically you take the net income and you add depreciation and amortization back in. Uh, it is a non-gap measure. So what is a non-GAAP measure? So a GAAP measure is generally accepted accounting principles. So non-GAAP are basically non-generally accepted accounting principle. Um, You have to take 
non-gap measures, sometimes with a grain of salt. Uh, however, for REITs, they're very, very useful. So those two metrics, um, the reason we've talked about it before is depreci depreciation and amortization. Uh, it doesn't really apply as much to, um, to REITs uh, because the, usually the building doesn't really decrease in value. If anything, oftentimes it will increase in value. Um, and the, uh, the amortization, it just, it's not... It doesn't give you a good ind indicator in terms of the actual money coming in and out. Um, AFFO is like uh, funds from operation. It's adjusted and basically it takes into account the maintenance required to uh, keep those building uh, running. So it's uh, I find it even a bit better. So I'll be referring to those two measures when uh, I'm talking about these. Um, if you're thinking, oh man, like I need to, like I'll need to crush these numbers and do all the work myself worry not um, you can actually find that information pretty easily in most uh, uh, investor relation pages for REITs so if you look at the uh, supplemental information for the quarterly releases look for the Q4 release the supplemental inf information of the Q4 that one will contain the full year uh, information and also the quarterly information so you can just look at those and then it'll give you a good idea you'll have the actual FFO and AFFO metrics on there um, so before I get started uh, on DLR itself uh, Brayden did you have any questions or any comments on AFFO and AFFO no I'm good man well versed I want to hear this pitch though I like this company um, but I got some uh, some questions lined up for you so I'm excited so what is a data center um, so first of all it provides physical space so the actual building um, so each piece of equipment that a uh, company will want to use in the data center uh, takes uh, rack space. So basically, there's an infrastructure cost for that. So the uh, data read center provides that. It also will provide the power consumption, but usually it will be included in the price. It provides data connectivity. So data center has multiple internet connections um, for different types of bandwidths. Um, and obviously they're distributed amongst the uh, customers that are using some of that space. Um, they'll also uh, do cross connection. So if you need to connect equipment with isn't in the same rack, um, the data center will need to run cables. So there might be a charge for that as well. And they can offer labor and technical support, but uh, companies can also provide their own. Obviously there would be a charge for that as well. So that's basically what a data data center read provides um, they won't actually put the servers in so usually those uh, will be the responsibilities of the actual tenant so as you can imagine it's a pretty pretty solid uh, kind of business uh, just to begin with for that um, so now let's look at DLR a bit more specifically so the numbers are really good I mean you can't first of all Let's just think about it for a second. Um, so data read, I mean, we're doing more and more stuff in the cloud, um, more data storage, uh, everything you can think of pretty much has to do with data. So the tailwind are just amazing for this sector, whether you look at uh, DLR, uh, Equinix, Coresight Realty, and I know there's a few other ones um, that are listed, but the tailwinds are just huge. Um, so the revenues and profitability. Um, so the revenues went from $1.26 billion to 2.26 billion from 2014 to 2015. Um, so that's 12.5% compound annual growth rate, so very solid. Um, the funds from operation per share went from $5.4 
in 2014 and 665 in 2019. So that's a 5.7 compound annual growth rate for FFO. Again, very solid as well. And the FFO payout, uh, sorry, the AFFO payout ratio was around 80% in 2014 and 2015. But since then, it's been uh, around 70%. And I think that's where their, their sweet spot is. Um, and really, I mean, the dividend is well covered. Um, as you can see with the 70% uh, payout ratio, it might be a bit high if you compare it to other types of businesses, but because they have very stable cash flows, um, that's something that, you know, is totally acceptable, not an issue in my mind. Um, the dividend went from 0 0.85 cents per share in 2015, and this year it is uh, $1.12 per share. So that's 5.7% compound annual growth rate, which is pretty, it's in line with the uh, FFO increase. So you can, you can see that correlation between the two. And that's really important because, you know, if you grow your funds from operation at a certain rate, um, the dividend can oftentimes grow at a similar rate. Whereas if your funds from operation don't grow as quickly as your dividend, then that's where the payout ratio could be strained. So those are all really good things in my opinion for DLR. Uh, balance sheet looks solid. Uh, management prides itself as having a good conservative approach in terms of capital allocation. So they don't want to overextend themselves and they, when they invest in growth opportunities and you can really tell that uh, by looking at the balance sheets over the uh, past five years um, the most recent one they have 23 billion dollars in assets um, 3 billion of which is goodwill and 12.4 billion in liabilities so those are are fine ratios very compare very comparable to equinix and coresite realty two of its compare uh, its competitors um, the asset to liability ratio has stayed very constant in the past five years. So that's a good thing. They're not, again, um, leveraging themselves too much. So that's something I always like to see. And the interest expense is well covered by FFO. It's around 4.55x FFO. Um, in terms of where their business is, so they are fairly well diversified globally. They have 2% of their uh, data reads in Latin America. Obviously, that's not high. 6% in Asia Pacific. 27% uh, in Europe, Middle East, and Africa. And then 65% in North America. So definitely still uh, more of a presence in North America. And if I remember correctly, in North America, I think it's uh, only the U.S. Um, but that's just going on memory. And in terms of its clients, I mean, you'll recognize a lot of names. So you have Oracle, you have IBM, Facebook, uh, a lot of Fortune uh, 500. Uh, 50 software companies um, and they're pretty well diversified in terms of clients the the biggest one in terms of percentage is uh, ibm with 6.4 percent um, so you have um, a lot of major companies in there so a very good diversification when it comes to client so that that's pretty much my overview for uh for digital realty trusts um so uh, Braden, what kind of questions did you have for me one thing I did want to point out that I really love about this business is that they don't own the servers. The servers are actually have to be purchased uh, by the actual company who like their customer. 
So the servers have to be provided by their customer and then they put it in their data center and then collect rent on it. That part of it seems like a really good, one of the better parts of the business model. Uh, one thing I would like to comment on, Simon, is I am glad you are invested in renewable energy as well to offset the outrageous footprint uh, energy consumption-wise that these data centers use. Uh, over 400 megawatts of distributed generation inside of their uh, their data centers, which is huge. Like uh, here in Ontario, the big nuclear reactors are 800 megawatts, so half a nuke right there. Uh, definitely quite big. One of my bigger questions for you, and you mentioned them, uh, the big competitor and kind of the leader in this space by market cap is Equinix, uh, if I'm pronouncing that right. It's so similar on like literally every metric other than just DLR is a little smaller. So I'm just wondering when you're looking at both of them, is there a reason that you like DLL more? Would you be happy to own both in like a kind of Visa MasterCard situation where I'm about to capitalize on this big secular growth trend of data centers and you know our just endless need for increasingly more data? Is is DLR want something that sticks out more to you than the rest of the peer group? Um, or would you be happy to own all of them? What's your thoughts on this process? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think you can go wrong whether you choose uh, DLR or Equinix. Like you said, the metrics are very similar. I think they have a slightly different approach in terms of the services they'll offer to their tenants. Uh, but again, I mean, it's... Uh, I don't think you can go wrong if you pick one or the other. If you're looking a bit more for a higher yield, say you're retired, but you still want a play on uh, on data reads um, and the tailwinds that you know they're they're actually facing right now. Um, I mean, DLR might be a better idea just because it pays a slightly higher dividend and you're looking to get the income. Uh, but if not, I mean, you can't go wrong if you actually purchase both. Or I would even personally. Uh, go and do maybe a basket. So DLR, CoreSight Realty, and Equinix. Uh, I like CoreSight because it's a smaller player in the space. It's uh, it's a pure play in the U.S. Uh, Equinix I like because it's more diversified globally. Um, and I mean, obviously DLR and Equinix are more. They're a bit more in terms of financial resources. They have them more than uh, CoreSight Realty, but uh, CoreSight Realty might have a bit more growth because it's much smaller, right? So um, I don't think you you could go wrong if you do a basket approach. Again, if you are looking into these, uh, like I would like always recommend just dollar cost averaging if you want to start a position. But I mean, those are just uh, what's not to like. They pay a dividend. There's huge tailwinds. Um, they're financially, they're very stable and it's really steady as she goes. So um, yeah, that kind of says it all. No, it certainly is steady as she goes. Uh, that is definitely a stock chart that is up and to the right in a major way. Uh, so it's been good to be a shareholder. The other name I would mention that we talked before we started recording is American Tower Group, ticker AMT. If you were to take that basket approach, definitely pricey um, in terms of price to AFO. But uh, American Tower is potentially, you know, richly valued due to the 5G hype. But uh, they're they're 
going to be delivering on 20% year-over-year dividend growth, according to uh, to management. And it's pretty hard for them to, to, to see that not come to fruition with the amount of uh, data consumption and the amount of, uh, you know, that business model just improving as, as 5G rolls out. And like I said, our just insatiable thirst for data um, and that's only going to increase when we, we start talking about the, you know, automated internet of things and self-driving cars, you know, it's just, it's an obvious secular trend back to our episode last, last week. Well, even, this is, uh, it's just obvious. It's going to happen. Yeah, exactly. And even like you were mentioning, uh, video games last week and even video games, more and more developers are trying to get, uh, like video games on a cloud. So people don't need souped up PCs or machine to be able to play the game. They basically would play it, um, you know, through their internet connection, the game would be housed in a server. So there's, I mean, you can just take a few minutes and you can probably think about, uh, you know, 15, 20 different reasons why there's a uh, crazy tailwinds for them. For sure. As Charlie Munger says, fish where the fish are. Um, and, you know, this is definitely a pond with lots of fish. All right. I like I like the pick, Simon. Uh, golf clap from me. It's about time that I do a formal pitch because, you know, how many times, you know, if I had a, one Shopify share for every time I mentioned Eng House on this podcast, well... Oof, I'd be probably retired living on a beach somewhere. So, okay, let's talk about Enchaus. This is a smaller firm in the grand scheme of things, just a few billion in market cap. Uh, been such, such a good performer in the last 12 months and beyond. Um, so, yeah, just go check out a stock chart for Enchaus and you'll see the market absolutely loves this thing. The before I get on the pitch, I will agree that the uh, the valuation multiples are definitely getting stretched. There's no argument about that, but I'm going to explain why the market likes this thing so much. Um, and we talked about secular trends last week. Well, this company has been aggressively investing in those secular trends pre-COVID. So the management team seems to have some sort of crystal ball uh, and and have been very, very prudent executors and managers of capital. So what Enchouse does is it's a large, large portfolio of enterprise software, B2B mostly, uh, companies. So it's it's a massive acquisition machine that buys small cash flowing and profitable software businesses with high recurring revenue and three of their main verticals. So uh, the first the first and the largest vertical is their interactive division. So some of the names in here do video communications, Microsoft Teams integrations, telemedicine infrastructure, uh, different APIs for businesses to improve communications in their organization, call centers, workforce analytics, the, la- the list goes on. So tons and tons of smaller SaaS companies inside of this. So you're probably hearing some of those names and going, oh, they probably had a pretty decent quarter. Well, you were right. So before I get back to that portfolio, uh, they also have a networks portfolio. 
So network operations, 5G cloud infrastructure, again, very similar to the secular uh, trends we were just talking about with DLR. Uh, House has a small, uh, in a small way, is in that game as well. So that's one of the divisions. And then their transportation portfolio, transit, fleet management, public safety, e-ticketing, um, it's another one of their divisions. So the three of those and inside of those three divisions, those three portfolios is a basket and basket of small software firms that are essentially acquired, made part of the Ench house, uh, family, you know, do integrations between them and, and try to find synergies between them where possible. But at the end of the day, they want to, acquire these companies and let them continue to grow organically while Ench House, the parent company, goes after that acquisition growth. So you're seeing some organic growth, probably best in class in terms of organic growth uh, compared to the competitors of software acquirers here in Canada. So also had to do this pick because you did an American one. Here's a Canadian pick. So that's that's kind of what you're seeing is you're seeing organic growth, let those companies continue to operate and then take the cash flow, the profits that these companies are spinning off and go look for more acquisition targets. The acquisition targets for niche B2B software in these verticals is literally endless, like on a global perspective. Um, Because on a global perspective, this is 2019 numbers, US was 30% of their business, Canada only 3% of revenue, Europe, 18%, Scandinavia, 24%, uh, Asia Pacific, 6%, UK, 19%. So this is a software firm acquisition strategy out of Markham, Ontario, but uh, don't be fooled. They're doing almost all of their business outside of Canada, Uh, 97% of it outside of Canada. So this is one of those companies that is looking for global secular trends, capitalizing it on it, trying to pay a good or fair price for these software niche companies, and then continuing to you know rinse and repeat and boost cash flows. So some of the recent acquisitions is why you know I liked this company before, and I really like it now. And this is why the multiple expanded from like a 32 PE to upwards of 50 times earnings these days. So the valuation is definitely quite, quite high, quite rich. But that's because of some really, really strategic acquisitions. They made six acquisitions since the beginning of Q1 uh, fiscal 19. And... um Midway, Q3 in fiscal 19, they acquired a company called Video. And Video basically is an API for companies when they're building out uh, team software to easily integrate video communication. Um, This has been a huge, huge grower during the COVID environment, of course. And it's been, uh, management's come out and said this acquisition has been a huge driver for growth. And that's why we delivered, you know, huge growth on revenue compared to Q2 or Q1 last year. So I was reading this report and we've talked about how management is not comfortable going out and saying, uh, you know, COVID could be great for our business. But Enchhouse basically was just like, look, uh, 
the investments we've been making over the last year and a half happen to all be very, very uh, good in this environment, to say the least. Like telemedicine, video communication, and Microsoft Teams integrations. You know, some of those developments, Microsoft Teams seeing massive, massive boosts in usage and honestly could put Slack out of business the way Slack's acting, uh, you know, filing com- competition lawsuits in, in Europe. So it's it's definitely a company that uh, has seems to have some sort of crystal ball when it comes to these acquisitions. It's really, really hard to dislike uh, some of the fundamentals, some of the profitability, the dividend growth. Uh, so what they do is just take, take a step back again is they go for companies in the five to fifty million dollar range in revenue. So they're getting them pretty early. Like they're doing a takeover pretty early on some of these software companies. These are founders that are potentially looking for exits and can be replaced with a new CEO, um, potential partial cash out. So this, you know, Enchhouse as an acquisition machine is is good for founders um, and is probably they're probably liking how quickly and agile they're able to get some of these deals done. So it's probably, uh, it's, it's great for both parties in this situation. So they're looking for geographic scale, uh, solutions that are really sticky and high barriers to entry for other competitors. Because with some of this small software, you know, big tech with limitless amount of cash can go, completely steal all the market share but these are too small for them so it's almost this these small niche categories is the moat in a way um and can still achieve global growth in that small niche so it might not be a you know a hundred billion dollar opportunity but it might be you know a hundred million five hundred million dollar opportunity for some of these companies. So that's been that's been their bread and butter. To give you some of the metrics here, uh, 10-year compound annual growth rate of 17.3%, 25% compound annual growth 10 years on earnings per share, and 18% on free cash flow. Give this balance sheet a look. No long-term debt. It is uh, and lots of cash to make acquisitions coming through to the to the end of the year. You know they make an acquisition pretty much every quarter, so it, it's it's really good to see gross margins seventy percent, of course, with uh, with with software free cash margins of twenty percent on ten year median. Really, really hard to like some of these fundamentals. You could roast me on this uh, this valuation getting stretched pretty richly. And I will not disagree with you. The dividend's growing at over 20% a year. Um, For dividend growth investors, you know, US or Canada, this is a pick that is still small and not on a lot of big smart money's uh, radar. You know, being less than $5 billion in market cap, a lot of these big, big names don't even look at it. If you're a dividend growth investor with a long runway here, it's really, really hard to dislike an acquisition machine like Enchos. Oh, is it my turn to chime in? It's your turn, buddy. <laughs> I am. I have pretty much no more to say about this company. 
Yeah. Um, other other than I own a, a, a ton of it. Um, so yeah. What well, do, you make you think what, you make me want to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> Did that pitch work? Yeah. If I, mean, I sold you, uh, if I sold you, I'm. I mean, it, it's trading at nine times sales. So I mean, it, it's which is actually not outrageous for SaaS. If anything, it's cheap for SaaS. Um, the only thing that I'm going to, you know, almost counteract my my bull case here and say and and talk about the bearish case is there's a couple things I don't love as a shareholder about it. Um, well, there's one thing I really like being a shareholder about it is that it's uh, made me a ton of money. But the se- the thing I do not like is the investor relations page not only looks like it was developed in the 1940s for a software company is kind of questionable, but it's this big, confusing black box of companies, um, and they're not transparent, whether that's on purpose or not, I don't know, about sort of the the split between how some of these names are performing, you know, these big basket of companies. It's really a black box as an investor. You're putting a like huge leap of faith in the management team, which is which is fine. Um, it's it, it's impossible. Another name I love in this space is Roper Technologies, which is much much bigger, like forty billion on the U.S. exchange. And again, it's really, really hard as an investor to be in Roper's scenario, be an expert in all 43 of their businesses, right? Or even a Berkshire, even a, you know, Berkshire shareholder, you know, are you going to be an investor in over a hundred, like over 70 private companies and, you know, 30 odd public companies? So you are, again, taking that instant diversification and leap of faith, in the management team for better or for worse. I don't love that. I like the more simple businesses, but again, this, this company's in the right places. Seems like a bit of a crystal ball going into COVID. So, um, you know, sometimes you get lucky it is what it is. Uh, yeah. And, uh, so I was wondering, do they have a specific dividend policy or they kind of, or like a ratio or a target to increase it year over year? Yeah, they're they're part of like uh, Canada's dividend growers index. They've been raising it very consistently. I'm looking at a 10 year statement here, and uh, I can't see past 2010, but they have raised it every single year uh, all, during all of those years. So, you know, back in the early two, uh, 2010, 2011, they were growing the dividend at 34 um, percent. It's pretty. Oh, sir, I was looking at DLR. Even better, uh, last year, last year, Enchaus raised the dividend 44% in 2019. 44%. Um, so the only there's only been two years on this 10-year statement that they re- didn't raise the dividend more than 20%, and those two times were 18 and 15. So extremely predictable dividend growth because of the model. They buy instantly profitable companies out there doing five to 50 million in revenue. And it's just kind of like a piece of cake for them to keep raising earnings and and keep raising um, EPS growth and, and, and dividend growth for the long term. It's just, to me, it seems like easy money on the table. Yeah. And there's no risk of, 
getting into bidding wars sometimes. I know they're not the only uh, company that focuses on uh, an acquiring uh, like strategy for smaller uh, businesses and then incorporate them. Or like, isn't there a risk that uh, maybe they'll start, uh, you know, get competition with those businesses from Constellation Software, Ropart, you mentioned, uh, is that a risk? Or because they're much smaller, they can really dabble into the uh, probably too small for even those companies? Yeah, it's it's a great it's a great question. Uh, I think there will be increased competition in terms of holding companies that are looking to buy cash flowing niche software. It's definitely one of my favorite types of companies out there right now, and that will that will increase. Right now, their competitive advantage is their agility, nimbleness, and and size of being small. Um, their global footprint right now as well, like I mentioned, that geographical revenue base, their advantage right now seems to be that they're finding deals that no one's really even looking at. Again, there's so many acquisition targets out there. Constellation Software came out and said that they have over a thousand companies in their acquisition database that they would be serious buyers of. So <laughs> that's a lot of companies that just constellations looking at us. We we would buy these companies today, tomorrow, and then they can put that into like a bit of a ranking system. They can be really, really selective. So as much as there is going to be increased competition, I think in some of these deals, there's so many fish in the pond that it's going to take a long time, if ever, for these acquisition companies to catch up in terms of numbers of them versus deals out there that founders are looking for exits uh, or partial exits, continue to run the company or go do something else. That's kind of up to them. And it's, it's a win. It's a, honestly, it's a win-win for entrepreneurs and, and Ench House as well. So it, it's a good question though. I, I do think right now that's not a concern given how many opportunities there are out there. No, fair enough. Uh, good answer. No, I mean, I think you covered it pretty well. Uh, for me, it's still a matter of a bit more valuation. If there is a bit of a pullback, I might uh, end up starting a position, but I've had it on my radar for uh, probably the past six months uh, because uh, of you, Braden. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that. I'm humbled. The, the other thing that I'm just looking at metrics right now is that perennial acquisition companies typically have a declining return on invested capital, which makes sense. You know, as they grow, the ROI on the base of companies, on those new acquisitions, just by nature as time goes on, you see these big acquisition companies, their return on invested capital continues to continues like clockwork to creep down, which is not a bad thing. Um, but what I find really, really interesting about Enchouse is the consistent uptick in return on invested capital. Like their recent acquisitions over the last 10 years have been even better and better. Um, so last year, 2019 return on invested capital of 33.53%. The previous year, 32, 26, 27, 22. Uh, so like and that's going backwards. You're seeing this like really, really nice expansion on profitability metrics of return on equity and return on invested capital, which is very untypical 
for these acquisition machines. So I find that really interesting in terms of management seeming to have some secret sauce. Uh, again, uh, in the right places. I wish they were more transparent at Enchaus. I'm, I'm calling you guys out. I would like as a shareholder more transparency on which companies are doing what and what just give me a list of the names not not just what they're doing um so yeah i think there's an opportunity for some increased transparency as a shareholder yeah no that was great uh did you have anything else to add overall or um we'll uh, call it an episode let's call it an episode man uh this was really fun i think we should do pitches more often i get so fired up doing a stock pitch um yeah so just to just to plug my service here is i pick a company or two every single month sometimes it's not a new company in the portfolio sometimes it's an existing position um every single month in my newsletter on stratosphereinvesting.com it's a 14 day free trial and can see exactly what i'm investing in names like this research that i'm doing uh and you can find it all there All right, guys, this has been fun. Simon, let's do this again. This is the Canadian Investor. We will see you guys next week. Take care. The Canadian Investor is not to be taken as investment advice. Braden or Simon may own securities mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment decisions. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Canadian Investor. To get a list of the top Canadian dividend stocks right now and other valuable investing resources, go to GetStockMarket.com.